0: my welcome, if i haven't met, my name is Paul, I'm the pastor here, uh, we're in Acts chapter 15. Today's service is a bit different, we're doing a sermon early, because it's Compassion Sunday, so we hear lots about the work of compassion after the sermon tonight. But tonight I get to, to speak on possibly my favourite topic, and I'm preaching on it not because I want to preach on it, because the Bible talks about it tonight. Uh, you might have been a, a Christian for 50 plus years here tonight. You've still got a delight in this topic I'm about to preach on tonight. You might have been a Christian for five years or one year or five weeks, but you've still got to delight in this topic I'm preaching on tonight. You might not be a Christian here tonight, and I hope you leave here delighting in this topic. And the topic is grace, God's undeserved favor towards us in Christ. God's loving kindness towards us, not because of what we do, but because of what what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no better topic to preach on, is there, than the topic of grace. Hear these amazing words from an old hymn by Horatio Boner. He writes, Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work, save thine, no other blood will do. no strength, save that which is divine, can, barely, can bear me safely through. Is that beautiful? Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. we sing about grace all the time, don't we? We love singing about grace. This is amazing grace. Our shame was deeper still, but God's grace is sufficient, isn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Come thy fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. I'm born again by grace and grace alone, I'll live by faith and grace alone. and We love to sing about grace, it's the most beautiful word in the Bible, isn't it? And We love to talk about grace, we talk about grace all the time because we're evangelical Christians, aren't we? We love to talk about grace, that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less, because we're saved by grace. We're made right with God, not because of what we do, but what Christ has done. What's an acronym for grace? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches, God's blessing bestowed on us, not because of what we've done, but at Christ's expense. Because Jesus paid it all. And we love to sing about grace and we love to talk about grace but my question for you tonight is this. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that you're right with God that you're saved by grace and grace alone? Do you really believe that there is nothing that you have done in the past that contributes one little bit to your right standing before God? Do you really believe there's nothing that you're going to do in the future, no good work, no acts of kindness, no religious ritual that God will look at on the last day and say, that was the moment where you did that good thing and then you earned your place in heaven? Do you believe it? Do you believe you're saved by grace and grace alone? I've been a Christian for 25 years and I think my biggest daily struggle is is called good works and legalism. I want to do the good works because God commands me to do them. But there's a part of me and a little bit of me that wants to make God sort of give me the brownie point and earn my place in heaven by my good works. And it's called legalism or it's called good works or earning your salvation. So we sing about grace, we talk about grace, but do you really believe it? Martin Luther did. Martin Luther was a great reformer. He was a monk. He fasted. He prayed. He said this, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. One day I was reading Romans one verse seventeen The righteous shall live by faith, by faith. And here I felt I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. It was grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what grace does, it utterly transforms you. Not just men and women of history, but many women today. There's a girl here at six forty five, not sure who's here tonight, Sylvana. Is Sylvana here anywhere? Sir in our Bible study group. She's from Argentina. She came to church by the bridge four and a half, five years ago. She was a nanny. And she brought the kids to playtime and she met some Christian ladies who invited her to church. And she came to church and she signed up for a Simply Christianity course, a bit like Christianity Explored. And she gave her testimony at Bible study two weeks ago. And she said, I, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I've been in church all my life and I'd never heard this gospel of grace. Grace is the most beautiful word for me. Is it the most beautiful word for you? That you're right with God by grace and grace alone? We're in Acts chapter 15. Someone's described this chapter as a bit like a toll gate. You know, you're zooming down the freeway of church history and the. Jerusalem church is exploding. The Gentile church is exploding. There's millions of people becoming Christians. And there's still a lot of freeway to go. The gospel has got to go out to the ends of the earth. But before it's going to get there, you've got to go through a toll booth and a toll gate. And Acts chapter 15 is that chapter. This is the important chapter. If they get this one wrong, if they get this doctrine wrong, then the rest of Christianity is stuffed up. And if Acts chapter 50 is like the toll gate, then there's one verse, verse that's like the toll booth. And one key word in that one key verse, which is so precious and so profound. And that word is grace. Here's your memory verse for the week, verse 11. On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. In the same way they are. We Jews are saved by grace. And they Gentiles are saved by grace. Because everybody is saved by grace. We believe that they say. We trust that. We know that. We are confident of that. That we're saved by grace. We're not saved by our intellect, we're not saved by our background, we're not saved by our heritage, we're not saved by our height, we're not saved by our race, we're not saved by our gender, or dare I say it, we're not saved by our sexuality, we're saved by grace and grace alone. It's not what we do. It's what Christ has done for us at Calvary that saves us. There's a story of of an older teenage boy, I think he's about 18 or 19, who's going for his church membership interview. Some church have these membership interviews. You meet with the pastor and the pastor says, now tell me, how, how were you saved? And the boy says, oh, it was partly God's work and partly my work. And you can see the pastors and the, the theological alarm bells are ringing, dodgy theology. <coughs> could you t- explain that? I mean, what was, what was God's work and what was your work? And the boy said, oh, God's work was really simple. God did all the saving bit. But what was your part then? Oh, I did the sinning bit. <laughs> I did the sinning bit and God did the saving bit. That's a gospel of grace, isn't it? We're good at sinning and God's good at the saving and you can't save yourself. So with that in mind, let's look at the text. We're in Antioch. It's a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles. and Look at verse 1 some men came down to this church from Judea and they began to teach the brothers, the Christians, the Christian brothers and sisters, see if you can spot the dodgy word. This is wrong teaching. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. What's the the dodgy word? Unless... Unless you do something, you cannot be saved. For them it was circumcision, but it could be anything. Unless you do something in addition to Jesus dying for you, you cannot be saved. I'm sure these men were not denying that Jesus Christ died for their sins. I'm sure they talked very clearly about the cross and the empty tomb, but their gospel is Jesus plus something else. Come to Jesus plus do something come to Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, but you must also do something like be circumcised or keep the law if you want to be saved. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. It's a Jesus plus gospel. And I'm sure that these men quoted the scriptures. They probably quoted Leviticus 17 and Genesis 17 where it talks about you must be circumcised, a sign that you belong to God. And I'm sure they were very persuasive False teachers are very persuasive, mixing enough scripture, that you sound convincing, but it's dodgy theology. And we know people listened. Go and read the book of Galatians. This early church, you have shifted from the gospel of grace. And Paul writes in Galatians 1 I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel. Even Peter, at that point in history, had been sucked in by this wrong teaching. So the heart of the issue in verse one is this. Is a sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is something else required, unless you're circumcised? Is a sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is there some attachment like law-keeping or Sabbath-keeping? Did Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary, achieve everything necessary for your salvation? Or do you have to do something? That's the issue. And what's at stake is the gospel of grace. I love this quote. Grace is always a humiliation for the ego. Salvation is always a defeat for your ego. Because I want to feel I've done something to accomplish this. And that's the way the ego feels satisfied and competent. But at some point you've got to realize that salvation is absolutely, objectively, metaphysically and universally a free gift by grace alone. And all you can do is receive it. It's free for the taking and has nothing whatsoever to do with being worthy of it. Now do you see what's at stake in verse 1? If you add anything to grace alone, well, Christ did not do enough, did he? The cross was not sufficient, and Jesus didn't pay it all. And there's some thing that you do, some human contribution, some achievement, and Christianity becomes, just like every other religion, a works-based religion. And that's why I love verse 2, because Paul and Barnabas engage in our uh, translation as a serious argument. It's literally a fierce argument and a debate. Wouldn't you love to have been there? The apostle, Paul, fierce as a lion, defending the gospel of grace. That's right, isn't it? You know, we, we can't sit in silence when people deny grace. We do not and we cannot ignore false teaching that denies the gospel of grace. So they send a delegation to Jerusalem and they arrive in verse 4. And they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And then the, they reported all that God had done with them. But just like in Antioch, there's wrong teaching. Look at verse 5. Spot the word believers. Some of the believers, they're not unbelievers. They're, they're, they're people who have trusted in Christ, but they haven't quite got it. Some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees, the law keepers, stood up and said, It is necessary. It's necessary to circumcise them, and it is necessary to command them to keep the law of Moses. Yes, Jesus died for them, but they must do this as well. Let me ask you, what do we as a church subtly make necessary for salvation? It's necessary to be baptized. It's a good thing, but it's not essential. It's necessary to be confirmed, it's necessary to take communion, it's necessary to come to church. They're all good things, but they're not essential for your salvation, are they? It's necessary to read your Bible every day, it's necessary to say your prayers every day, it's necessary to give lots of money to church. They're good things to do, but they're not essential for your salvation, are they? I think this is a good one that we're we're best at. It is necessary to sort your life out before God will accept you. We're good at that one. That's what we subtly teach. Do your good work, sort out your life and then God might accept you. I have told you about my encounter with Anthony. He worked for the BBC in London. At a drinks party in London and I'm chatting to this guy called Anthony and he asked me the dreaded question, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a minister of a church. He said, oh, I'm gay and God hates me. I said, God doesn't hate you. God loves you. He said, no, God hates me. I said, how about you uh, come to church and do a course called Christian Explored and find out about Jesus. He said, oh, I could never become a Christian because God hates me. I said, forget about your lifestyle stuff. Just come and read the Bible and, and meet Jesus. And he did. And he came and he read the Bible and did the course and met Jesus and became a Christian. And then once he'd become a Christian, he started to sort out all his lifestyle stuff. But we suddenly get the wrong wrong way around, don't we? The world out there here is sort your life out, clean up all the mess, be a, a good person, and then God will accept you. But the gospel of grace is exactly the other way around. God loves you, God forgives you, God accepts you, Christ died for you, put your trust in Christ, and then let God change you. i say this quite strongly. How dare we add anything to the gospel of grace? How dare we pile on people rules and rituals and obligations and conditions that makes them feel so way down that they won't look at Jesus Christ? Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying your lifestyle does not matter. Of course, your lifestyle matters. If you claim to be a believer, you must change the way that you live. But please don't think that Your good lifestyle and your good works contribute anything to your salvation. Verse six. Then the apostles and the elders assembled to consider this matter. It's kind of like a a church council, a committee meeting. It's probably the most important committee meeting in church history. Because if this committee got this one wrong then Christianity would look so different. It would just become another sect of Judaism. And Peter stands up. He's the same man who struggled to believe that God could accept the Gentiles. He says, brothers, you're aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message, hear about Jesus dying for them, and they would believe, they would trust in that. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. They're saved by grace, and so are we. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. Jesus talked about the heart, didn't he? He said, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean. What comes out of your heart makes you unclean. You've all got dodgy hearts, and we all need cleansing of that heart by faith. Now look what he said in verse 10. Now then, why are you testing God? It's the same word used of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five. Why are you dishonoring God? Why are you blaspheming God? By putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. That's the thing about adding stuff to Grace. As soon as you add anything to the gospel of grace, you you destroy people's lives. Sounds strong, doesn't it? But you destroy people's lives. What can appear so spiritual? Requiring obedience to God's law, insisting on church attendance, on communion, on baptism, on religious rituals, has all the appearance of being so spiritual. But actually it's stopping people from coming to faith in Christ. I think verse 10 is a very apt verse for evangelical Christians. We put the yoke on the necks of people. We put burdens, we weigh people down. It's grace and grace alone. So let me ask you again, do you believe verse 11? On the contrary, we believe, we have confidence, we accept that we Jews are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they Gentiles are. Let me try and make it really clear. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to make you or me better lawkeepers. He came into the world to keep the law for us because we couldn't keep the law. He came into the world to show us that we need a saviour. Because if you're sitting here tonight and you think, I need to keep this law, I need to keep this law, you can't and you won't. You just feel a failure your whole life. Instead, you're supposed to run to the one who kept the law for you and died for you. And his name is Jesus. He did it all because he loves you. And it's called the doctrine of grace. So James speaks in verse 13. He's the, the brother of, of Jesus. He's actually called James the Just. He's known for his piety and his purity, his law-keeping. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter, Simeon, has reported how God first intervened. Listen to the experience he's talking about, how the Gentiles came to faith. And God's word, the Old Testament, predicted that in Amos. And he quotes from Amos in verses 16 to 18. Down to verse 19, therefore in my judgment we shouldn't cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. How dare we put anything in the way of people coming to faith in Christ? The story of the, uh, the church sign, that looks so, so light. It had two words, it just said the words, you're welcome. What a beautiful sign that is. Everyone welcome, you're all welcome. Someone had graffitied that sign and put two extra letters after it. The letter I and the letter F. You're welcome if. What do we say here at church by the bishop? You're welcome if you went to the right school, then then God might accept you. You're you're welcome if you have a certain skin colour, then God might accept you. You're welcome if you've got good Bible knowledge, then God might accept you. You're welcome if you look a certain way or speak a certain way or dress a certain way. You're welcome if, if, if. And the gospel of grace says there's no ifs, is there? You're all welcome because Christ died for you and Christ loves you. All he asks you to do is just to believe and trust in him. So how dare we stop people finding salvation in grace alone by adding things to the gospel of grace? Here's a confession for you. When I think to that last day when I stand before my maker and God says to me, Paul, just tell me why I should let you to heaven. Why should I let you to heaven, Paul? There's a part of me, you know, who is quite tempted to say, here's a thousand sermons i preached to Christians over the past 40 years. I read the Bible 45 times, cover to cover, and I, I prayed every day. And, oh, all that, all that money I gave to gospel ministry, surely that counted towards something, God. That's that, that pride in me that sort of wants to, to contribute in some way. Now, here's the reality God will look at me and say, Paul, those sermons, those Bible studies, those Bible readings, those good works, those giving, they're all great things. You know, people have come to faith in them. Well done. But see that lady over there? She never read the Bible cover to cover. She never preached any sermon. In fact, she came to faith on her last day that she was alive. She's saved by grace. And so are you. All that good works. It was great. But it didn't contribute towards your salvation. I'm saved by grace and gracefully. I'm equal with you. There's no one here who's better or worse than anybody. Anybody. That's what grace does. So I'll ask you again do you believe it? You sing about it. We talk about it. But do you believe it? Can you pray for your pastors and for your teachers and your preachers and your barbers a little bit? We keep preaching grace. There's lots of churches around Sydney, around the world, they're just very, very subtly. Slip into legalism and good works, and you leave every week and you feel burdened and weighed down as though your relationship with God is dependent on your good works. But you eager eyed people have probably spotted verse 20, haven't you? You're saved by grace, but verse 20. Instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. Doesn't that seem utterly bizarre and contradictory? (laughs) He's just preached a cracking sermon on grace, and now he's talking about these things that you can and can't do. This is what he's saying. He's saying you're saved by grace, but you live by love. He's saying in verse 20, when it comes to living as a Christian, when it comes to mixing with Jews and Gentiles in one church, as one body, as as one fellowship, there are certain things that you shouldn't, shouldn't do because it stops people from living out the Christian life and is a stumbling block for people here in the gospel of grace. So he says to the Gentiles, when it comes to eating with your Jewish brothers and sisters Write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from temple prostitution, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. These things are going to cause a stumbling block for the believers in Christ. And the loving thing to do is to say no to them. Let's flick over to chapter 16, because bizarre things happens at the beginning of chapter 16. Paul meets a, a guy called Timothy. What does Paul do to Timothy in 16, verse 3? Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Isn't that bizarre? He's just said, you're not saved by circumcision, so why does he bother to circumcise him? Why would Timothy, as a 20-year-old, allow himself to be circumcised? And the answer is that he, he will do anything he can to make sure he gets an audience for the gospel. If it's going to be easier to to evangelize because he's circumcised, let's circumcise him. Who cares? I'm sure Timothy cared. (laughs) The point is this. There are things that we are free to do as believers in Christ. But the loving thing might be not to do them for the sake of church fellowship and for the sake of evangelism. He's saying, don't flaunt your freedom at the expense of unity and the expense of evangelism. I'll give you a few examples here at Church by the Bridge. You might not, you might not know that this site is a, is a dry site. We don't serve alcohol here. We've had many heated debates at Paris Council over that one. We're free to drink. Of course we are. In moderation. But if that's going to be a stumbling block from somebody coming to hear the gospel, if that's going to be a stumbling block for a brother or sister here who struggles with that, then the loving thing to do is to say, hey, let's make it a dry sight, that's okay. You might notice that I never preach in a t-shirt or in shorts here at church by the bridge, and that's not because my legs are distracting or my bulging biceps might distract you. It's because for some people, they might actually spend time trying to read the slogan on my t-shirt or thinking, well, I didn't come to church expecting for someone so casually dressed to preach to me. I'm free to do it, but I choose to dress smartly. I'll give you another example. I've done mission work in India and in Thailand. When I get off the plane, I always do one thing. this little silver thing in my ear called an earring. And I'm free to wear it as a Christian. But as I go about preaching the gospel in India and in Thailand, this is going to be a stumbling block. Because the unbelievers won't listen to a bloke wearing an earring. So what do I do? I just take it out. It's a loving thing to do. It's Loving to the believers and it's loving to the unbelievers. That's the point of verse 20. You're saved by grace but you live by love. So we sing about grace and we talk about grace but my, my biggest fear is this. There might be people in this church who started with grace 20 years ago. You were in love with Jesus and what he'd done for you but just over time you just slipped into works. Please tonight, come back to grace. You might have been here for many, many, many years but you know, You've never understood grace before. You thought you had to do something by come to church or read your Bible or say your prayers or keep the law. You don't. It's called grace. But my prayer is that tonight we'd all leave here just marveling again at this one verse. We believe. We believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Why don't we say the confession together and then I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll sing. Let's confess this together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you've washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you as we should and serve you as we ought. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone is our salvation. Amen. Father God, thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness and your grace that you've lavished on us. Thank you that you see us as we are. You love us as we are. You reach out to us and you call us home because of the grace you showed us in Christ. Forgive us, Father, for the time when we shift from grace and think that our works contribute in any way. Please make us a church that lives, preaches, and breathes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.